Jeff, we were talking at break time about the faith at the hour of death. And I showed you a song, and you showed me a song, and we just sang another song. It is I. Did you think about it during that third, ver- fourth verse? When death is at hand, and this cottage of clay is left with a tremulous sigh, the gracious Redeemer will light all the way, saying, Be not afraid. It is I. Praise the Lord, brother. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to take us and lead us all the way. Now, we then we sang. Well, then we sang, It is I. What book of the Bible would you go to where the Lord tells us that if we'll live faithfully, He will appear to us and say, Here I am. Thank you. Does anyone want to venture a chapter? There's only 66. Isaiah 58. It is a wonderful promise for the Lord to appear to us and say, Here I am, the God of heaven. Wonderful. Turn to your Bibles, John chapter 21. John chapter 21. So many good conversations at break time about the Word of God and about encouragement. And I thank each one of you that spoke to me. You encouraged me further. John chapter 21, because I overlooked this verse and it was pointed out to me, I just want to show it to you. It's the next to the last verse in the book of John. John chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple. There's John owning up to what he's been doing through the gospel of John, telling you about the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that rested on Jesus' bosom during the meals. John told that about himself several times. And here he is identifying himself. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. I wrote this epistle to you. That would have been so encouraging for John to know that Jesus loved him. It would have been so encouraging that out of the twelve, Jesus would choose to sit by John. And John shows us how encouraging it was to him by repeating it. And Brother Jerry has assigned you young people to come together tonight at the bonfire later this evening and be prepared to remember the good works the Lord has done in your lives. We are studying the attributes of God. Attributes are character traits of a person. Attributes are the character traits of God. And we are well into a long study of this subject. And we have looked at the ones that most theologians end with. We started with those because they don't get us very far. If we just learn about God being eternal and God being invisible and and God being infinite and omnipotent, omniscient and all those inherent attributes to the nature of God, and then we look at the ones like holy and wrathful and hate, he has hatred for certain people and certain spirits and certain things, and we look at those participatory attributes of his, there's not very much to comfort us. We're kind of left distant from him. And the things that we learn to that point are rather conceptual or theoretical. And they're not very helpful. But then we just keep going because the Bible doesn't quit there. And so that's why we're all the way down past revelatory attributes and past participatory attributes to what I am calling relational attributes. Things about God and how he relates to us. And he is incredibly personal. 
And last Lord's Day, we looked at how He is vulnerable, a word that usually isn't associated with God. But He is vulnerable to us. He is susceptible to being influenced, which is the definition of vulnerability, to us. And now today we're considering that He is encouraging. And we saw a lot of encouragement through the pages of Scripture. Now we want to consider some of those, some further promises and some other things as quickly as we can in the time that we have. We should delight in God no matter what. But does the Bible say, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Is that incentive, is that encouragement for us to delight in Him? He is sufficient of a perfect being to give delight to a man with a finite mind and a finite heart for his whole 70-year existence. God is sufficient to cause delight. His word could just say, Delight thyself also in the Lord, period. And it would be sufficient. Because he is a delightful object, a delightful being, a delightful person, a delightful God. And if he commanded us to do it, we should do it anyway. But he adds that reward on. And the Bible is full of those. We should do it regardless, but he rewards us anyway. And that is encouraging. To look at the verse, delight thyself also in the Lord. And if your heart is right, you only really care about the first half. I want to delight in the Lord. But then he says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, he'll change your desires as well while you're delighting in him, but he will give you the desires of your heart. What an encouraging God to write things that way. He doesn't need to. He is delightful. He doesn't need to. He could just command us and we owe it him. Look at Romans 8.28. Everybody knows this verse. I mean, why you, you can look at it, but you know it. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. No matter what bad things occur in your life, and it's not if bad things will come, it's when they'll come. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. But even when they come, look at the verses that we have. All things work together for good to them that love God. Is that encouragement to us when there's trouble in our lives? It is encouraging, and it's been used many times. Do you find it hard to forgive others? If you tell me you don't, I'll tell you you're probably fudging with me. Because it is hard for us to forgive. It's very, it's impossible for us to forgive by nature. And even when we're born again, we have that dual Those dual natures, those two natures fighting inside of us, trying to keep us from doing what we should. But in Matthew chapter 6, after the Lord's prayer was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, He said, because there was something said in that prayer that we want to have explained, If ye forgive men, this is Matthew 6, 14, If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Is that some pretty strong incentive to forgive others? That's incredible incentive. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Because in the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, it's not really the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer, because it's what the Lord taught the disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, when the Lord prayed to God His Father. But in that prayer it said, And we and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then the Lord Jesus Christ explained in the two verses I just read you. What encouragement! Forgiving others is hard by nature. When someone offends us, and someone offends us repeatedly, 
It's hard to forgive them. And so Peter would say seven times, Lord, can I draw the line at seven? And Jesus would say, no, 490 is a better number. Simon, how do we do that? Because if we're forgiving, the Lord's forgiving. And I want, I have a lot to be forgiven of. And I've been forgiven a lot. And so I want to forgive anyone for anything. And I hope that as I taught you last Lord's Day, let's look for someone to offend us. Would you please afterwards step on my toe and grind your heel on my shoe? Or open your car door and give me a nick, a ding in my car door. Maybe something like that I can handle. Look at how the Lord encourages us all the way through the pages of Scripture. Do you know what He should tell us? I've forgiven you. Forgive everyone. And He'd be fair, right, and just to do so. But He encourages us with a promise of great forgiveness. David knew it. David said to the merciful, Thou wilt show thyself merciful. Listen, I got a letter this week just ripping away at one of our proverb commentaries because I had the gall to say that David thought like God thinks. And this person just wrote and tore into me saying David was such a wicked person, murder, adultery. How can you say that David thought like God did? Well, I wasn't saying that David was thinking like God was thinking when he was committing adultery and murder. I had a very specific context. I was thinking about David eating the showbread. He knew that God would allow him to eat that showbread. And I went on to explain to this person, do you understand why God overlooked those sins of David when there were other men that didn't sin as bad, at least they weren't recorded in the pages of Scripture, that God didn't love as much as He loved David? How does that make sense in the Bible? Because David knew that to the merciful thou wilt make show thyself merciful, and David was incredibly merciful his whole life. Do you know how long he put up with King Saul? Do you know how many times he could have killed King Saul? Do you know how easily he could have stolen the nation? If they'd have had a popular vote in Israel to vote for King Saul or David, who would have voted for King Saul? Not even his own family. Everybody would have voted for David. David never did anything like that because David was merciful. And so David got a lot of mercy from the Lord. And if you look through David's life, you see that. The whole point being, our God is encouraging because he tells us to the merciful, he will show himself merciful. Praise the Lord. Those things are wonderful. Now, Brother Tim said earlier from Luke chapter 6, and I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. I want you to look at a verse that's there. And I want to show you about what he, that some of the rewards and promises that he attaches to his word. To be excited about this. Our Lord is encouraging. It's not just an iron fist at all. That's why I preached several months ago those two ditches that people get in about God. Either He's all love or He's all hate. And we want to be in the crown of the road. You know, every road has a crown on it. We want to be right in the center. Because you get toward the side, you tend, you tend to run off into a ditch. Lord, save us from those ditches Amen. in every subject. Amen. But Luke chapter 6, look at verse 38. Give. There's an imperative verb. It's telling you what to do. This is to others. Give. You know, in the previous verse it says, don't judge them, don't condemn them, forgive them. And then in this verse it says, give. And look what it's, and then it goes on to say, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. 
If you'll be liberal and generous in your giving, and I'm not talking about the pastor, and I'm not even talking about the church. I'm talking about the poor. Look at what the Lord will do. You know, we've talked about it so many times as a boy sitting there with those boxes of cereal in front of me and Al Kaline on them. That was a baseball player back in the old days. You know, you pull that box over and you open it up for the first time and you see that the cereal is only two-thirds of the way up. And then aside it says contents may have settled during shipping to explain why they only gave you two-thirds of a box when you paid for a whole box. You understand what I meant. But you know what? When the Lord gives a measure, He gives a full measure. If it says it's one pound box of Wheaties and 16 ounces are in the box because He said that, it'll be given unto you good measure, pressed down. Then He jumps on it in the box. And He crushes it all into powder at the bottom of the box. Then He adds more. Then He shakes it together to make sure there's no air left between the pieces. And then He just lets it run over the top of the box. Is that what it means in Luke 6.38 or am I, am I misled somewhere? Luke 6.38, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. You will never lose trying to give. Our God is encouraging. With a verse like that, who doesn't want to give? The Bible's so full of these things. What's the first commandment with promise? Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. It's not children, obey your parents and the Lord. That's verse 1. Verse 2. Honor thy father and thy mother, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Long life and a good life. To honor my father? I have the best father. I try to honor him privately, and I love to honor him publicly. What does it mean to honor your father? It doesn't mean to obey him. It's better than that. It's beyond that. You should obey him anyway. Just because of the first verse. The second verse is to treat your father specially. And your mother specially. Treat them with extra attention. Treat them with affection. Communicate openly with them. Treat them as someone powerful. Someone impressive. Someone to be reverenced. Someone to be honored. Someone to be dealt with kindly. Someone to be shown favor to. You should be picking up the tab for them when you can. You should be trying to show every bit of kindness that you can to them. That's what it means to honor parents. And Paul goes to say in Ephesians 6, it's the first commandment with a promise attached. When you look at the Ten Commandments and you're reading down through them, boom, there's that commandment, number five. And if you look at it, it's the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is a long life and a good life, and it's so easy. You know, people want to people talk about vitamins, and people want to talk about nutrition, and people want to talk about exercise, and people want to talk about traditional medicine and alternative medicine, and that's not how you extend your life. Right. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. God doesn't waste the ink of Scripture on health or diet. But He does spend time on honoring parents. And it's a wonderful promise. I've told you this before. When I have to be at a hospital, when I have to smell death, when I have to see death, I say to my wife, I say, let's get out of here. I hate this place. Let's get out of here. Where can I take my dad to eat tonight? You know why? Because that's going to keep me out of that place. According to the Word of God, and I believe it. You know, some of you took a trip this past Monday to go see a father. It blessed me greatly. Some of you are going to see a father this afternoon. 
It blesses me greatly because the Word of God says it. He encourages us. Why would he attach a promise? Do you know that every pagan in the world honors their parents better than than the Americans do? Better than American children and teenagers do and youth do? The Bible says so. Look, I'll show you. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're sick. This country is sick. We were given so much more. We've been taught so much more. Lord, forgive us for not fulfilling your word. You've, you've encouraged us. You gave us a commandment. They don't, even, they don't even know that there's a promise attached. And they honor their parents. 1 Timothy 5.8 is talking about taking care of your mother when she can no longer provide her own living, when she's a widow indeed and should be supported by her family. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if any provide not for his own, those are Christians, if they don't provide for their mothers and their aunts, when they can't provide for themselves, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, because infidel, Muslims, Chinese, Filipinos, they all take care of their parents better than Americans do. And they don't even have the commandment with a promise. We should take care of our parents because it's a law of nature. We should honor our parents because it's a law of nature. They brought us into the world and they changed our diapers and they took care of us. When we didn't do a thing for them, they did everything for us. We should do it simply as a, out of a law of nature. But there's a, in addition to that, the Bible says to do it because I say to do it, God does, the, the creator of all parents and the picker of all parents. He chose your parents for you. He doesn't care what your opinion is of your parents. He thinks your parents are perfect for you. And then he attaches a promise to it. Isn't that wonderful? He's an encouraging God. He doesn't need to do that. The laws of nature tell us to honor our parents. God could command us to honor our parents because he is the creator of parents and he's the creator of the family, but he attaches a promise to it. I love our creator God because he's so encouraging in everything. Jesus said that if we come unto him, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Is that encouraging? And I'll give you, you'll find rest for your souls. If you've ever watched a Roman Catholic, all the masses they go through and the penance they're supposed to perform in order to get a few days out of purgatory or their their dead husband out of purgatory, and yet Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest for your soul. It's not like Rome that is continually asking for more. God's commandments are not grievous. And the Bible tells us that. His commandments are not grievous. God did not tell you to honor father and mother to grieve you. God told you to honor father and mother because it makes happy families. God told you not to commit adultery because it makes happy marriages. God told you to work hard because it makes funded marriages. His commandments are not grievous. God did not write commandments in the Bible to hurt us. God wrote commandments in the Bible to help us. That's encouraging to know that. And it is stated that way in 1 John 5 and verse 3. Do you know he says he is not unrighteous to forget our labor of love? I've said this to you so many times, but remember today I want you to look at everything as the fact that God put that there for encouragement. Hebrews 6.10 God is not unrighteous to forget. We forget each other's good goodness and kindness that they show toward us. Husbands and wives take things for granted that each other does, but the Lord doesn't. God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. That's comforting. Do you know how detailed he is? If you have ever given a cup of cold water to a disciple in the name of Jesus, because he was a Christian, it'll be remembered in heaven. You won't remember it. God will remember it. And God will remind you of it. And Matthew 25 describes it in detail. The righteous will say, when did we ever visit you? When did we ever give you anything to to drink, Lord? 
When did we ever clothe you, Lord? When did we ever feed you a meal, Lord? Because they're going to forget. And he's going to say, in that ye did it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye did it unto me. Is that encouraging? Because do you know what kind of people you're supposed to give a drink to and food to in the Bible and clothing to? Those that can't pay you back. Very carefully it says that. Those that can't pay you back. If you're always taking someone out to eat that can take you out to eat the next time, that doesn't, make, that doesn't even measure with God. All the whole world does that. It's when you take someone out that can't take you out. Then the Lord will remember. You did it to me. That's encouraging. The Lord's encouraging. He's so encouraging in so many different ways. Is our temptations hard to resist? Wives, is it tempting sometimes to want to speak back very quickly to your husband when he says something that's not the best or he does something that's not the best? I know that once in a while we make a mistake, once or twice a decade. Are you tempted? Blessed is the man that endureth, blessed is the woman that endureth temptation. For when she is tried, she will receive the crown of life. James chapter 1 and verse 12. That's a promise. That's encouragement from the Lord. Is it hard to be content? The whole world wants us to be discontent, so we'll buy more. The world wants us to be discontent, but the Bible tells us to be content. And how does the Lord comfort us to be contented? How does He encourage us? I've taught you a thousand times. Hebrews 13 verse 5 is about contentment. Hebrews verses 13, 5b and verse 6 tell us how. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Be content with such things as ye have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If we have the Lord, who cares what stuff we've got? That's encouraging. Thank you, Lord, for being so encouraging to us. Have you ever gone to bed discouraged and got up in the morning encouraged? Do you know the Bible says that that's a rule of how he treats us? Do you know that he teaches us sometimes while we're sleeping to hold us back from sin? Do you know that it says in Job 33 where it's describing that operation of God that he says he oftentimes does this with men? Do I dare? No, I won't embarrass you, but I know that to be true. I love going to bed absolutely exhausted and discouraged. And I had a night this week. I was in pain. And I was excited because I knew by the experience of God encouraging me in the past, it was going to be different in the morning. Amen. And I, I was a tornado in the morning. I was a hurricane <laughs> blowing through the, all of God's mercy yes. while I slept. How's that for encouragement? Amen. Oftentimes. Yeah. David knew it. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Weeping may last for a night, the Bible says, but there'll be joy in the morning. Right. It's in the Bible. Because he wants to encourage us. Let me, let me encourage you with some things he's given you. This is kind of encouraging right here. Yeah. It's one book, two testaments, 66 books inside it, 1,189 chapters, 31,101 verses. And you know what? You can almost do this to me. You can blindfold me and you can open this thing and say, take a stab. And I won't have to read very far before it can encourage me. Have you, do you know that about the Bible? Yes. Now, I don't like playing games with God's Word, but I'm only doing it to reverence Him and be thankful to His Word. I landed in Psalm 66. And Psalm 66 is filled with good stuff, and I didn't plan it. That's not where my... See, this is at another place. I love God's Word. God gave us the Bible. 
What in the word? God gave us a book full of promises, full of encouragement, full of examples. You can open it nearly any, anywhere, read a few words or a few sentences, and be encouraged in God. The Jews looked at this thing out of superstitious value. They would wear it on their forehead. They would have it strapped on their arms. Have you ever watched a? Have anybody been to a mass to see a Catholic deal with the Word of God? Thank you. There should be more. I'll take you to Mass on Saturday night, 6 o'clock downtown St. Mary's. Once in a while it's good to understand what's been done to corrupt religion. Do you know how they deal with the Word of God? They carry it around like this. You know, like they're carrying something so precious. And they, you know, while the book says, call no man father on earth, and guess who's kissing the Bible? Father so-and-so. They don't care what the Bible says. They just treat it out of superstitious reverence. Lord, it's not, it's, it's that we don't want to treat it that way. The Jews treated it that way. Jesus told the Jews, search the scriptures. You think you have eternal life in them, and they are they which testify of me. How many men in the Bible viewed getting the Bible as if it was a great heritage, a great inheritance? Does the Bible say that it's more, it should be more valuable to us than much fine gold? What's fine gold mean? Does that mean it's 10 carat like your ring? Ten carat ain't fine. Somebody doesn't love you very much. Fourteen carat ain't very good. It's still only about 60% gold. Fourteen out of 24. 24 carat gold's good stuff. The Bible says much fine gold. Right here. And you know who said that? Was it a poor man that said that? If a poor man says that the Bible's better than gold, you can discount it. But when David the king said it, you can take it for what, it, what he's saying. Because he was rich. He knew that gold could buy him lots of things and he had lots of it. And he said this was better. Is it better to you that way? Job said it was better to him than his necessary food. Job chapter 23 and verse 12. There is so much encouragement in the word of God that it was more important to Job to get some of this every day than his own necessary food. That's not snacks between meals, which Americans are used to. That's the meals that you have to have to survive. The Word of God was better. Let me say again in this second assembly for the second time, man shall not live by bread alone. You always take care of your meals every day. Man shall not live by bread alone. How many days have you had in the year 2012 where you had your bread, and I mean any kind of food, but you didn't have the Word of God? Give yourself a number. Give the Lord a number. He knows what the true number is. How many days did you make sure you had your food, but you didn't have the word of God? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. This is the sustenance for our souls. This will encourage you. Bread doesn't encourage you. Bread just gets you to the next discouragement. Bread can lift up your heart once in a while in a very carnal way, but the, the word of God is what can lift you up more. I've already quoted this verse this morning, Romans 15, 4. The things that were written aforetime, Paul in the New Testament would write about the Old Testament, and that is three quarters of your Bible. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Where do we get our encouragement from? The Bible. How much of the Bible did Jacob have when the Lord gave him a vision of of a ladder going from earth to heaven, and there were angels going up and down on it. How much Bible did Jacob have? None. 
How much Bible did David have? Out of the 66 books, do you want to take a stab? Seven. Good stab. How many do you have? 66. We're blessed abundantly. This is one of the things God's given us to encourage us. He's put something in writing to us. A letter from heaven. That's encouraging. A letter from a far country or word from a far country encourages a man who's overseas. This is from God over heaven. It records sins of his favorites for your comfort. Does it have the sins of David? Is that comforting to know that God could love a man and say he's a man after my own heart, though he had some heinous sins in his life? That's very comforting. Is it comforting to find Samson in Hebrews chapter 11? The man who couldn't give up his obsession with Philistine prostitutes. He's in Hebrews 11. That doesn't encourage us toward prostitution. It encourages us because God forgives. And God is merciful. Does it have four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 that a woman can't get past the first chapter without finding four, three of which were quite sordid characters, and they're the only women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus? We've been over that before. They're, they're the only women mentioned. It's, it's a father, begetting a father, begetting a father, begetting a father, and so forth through this chain. But there's four women mentioned, and they're sinners. But the Lord put that there to encourage us. It's all in the Bible. How about the answers that it gives us for all kinds of questions or dilemmas about life or eternity? It's a child training manual. It's a marriage manual. It's an answer about how we're supposed to treat government. It's an answer of how we're supposed to work on the job. It's how we're supposed to handle our finances. All in the Bible. It has fulfilled prophecies. Aren't fulfilled prophecies wonderful things? When I tell you about Cyrus the Persian, and when Daniel was able to take to him the book of Isaiah and show Cyrus the Persian that he had been named by God 150 years before he was born by Isaiah the prophet, and it told how he was going to take the city of Babylon in one night, an impregnable city. Cyrus the Persian had Darius the Mede use his army corps of engineers to divert the water of the Euphrates River off into the desert, and he marched his army into the city of Babylon in the dry riverbed of the Euphrates while Belshazzar was blaspheming the God of Israel in that great assembly of a thousand princes. The whole chief of staff was in a meeting, and the army marched in unopposed and took the city of Babylon. It was an impregnable city. No one could have come close to taking it. And it's all part of history now. But it's all documented in the Bible before it ever happened. With Cyrus named C-Y-R-U-S in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. Does fulfilled prophecy encourage you? Yes, Lord! Some of you need medication. I know you may think that I'm I'm, I'm just crazy. But I'll tell you, I'm crazy. I'm crazier when I'm alone and no one's watching. Because then it's just between me and the Lord. I love his word. I love Cyrus the Persian. I want to read every time. I want to read every one of those. He's in Second Chronicles. He's in Ezra. He's in Daniel. He's in Isaiah. Cyrus was important to God. And oh, Cyrus, you know, he takes out his pen and he says, The Lord God of heaven hath charged me that his people should build him a house back in Jerusalem. Every one of you Jews that want to go, take off. Go build the house of the Lord God in Jerusalem. What does that do to you? It encourages me. It excites me in the Lord. Oh, you know, there's many more prophecies. I've preached whole series on 
the glory of fulfilled prophecies. Look at the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. I know, you thought I was going to go to Revelation 17. You thought I was going to go to Revelation 14 and tell you about the two witnesses. I want to give you something more important out of the book of Revelation. I want to give you some encouragement. Revelation chapter 2. Is God an encourager? Do you, know what he, do you know what the book of Revelation is about? That there's going to be a great war between the enemies of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that kingdom. That there's going to be many martyrs. That there's going to be an enemy church that is going to make it impossible to buy or sell. And that is called the Dark Ages in the history of Europe when if you weren't Roman Catholic, you didn't function. If you weren't Roman Catholic, you were burned at the stake. You were pulled apart in the rack. You had your possessions taken away from you and you were put out in the woods to die of starvation or the cold. On and on it went. The book of Revelation is filled with terror and evil things that are coming. And yet, do you want to see some encouragement? Watch this. Chapter 2 and verse 7. My brother Matthew Jones, remember? Come on, brother. It's only 20 years ago that we talked about this. Verse 7. He that hath an ear to hear... He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Follow with me. Revelation 2.7 To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You're kidding. If I'm an overcomer, God will let me eat of the tree of life that he wouldn't let Adam and Eve eat of? Yes. How about verse 11? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Is that kind of exciting? The lake of fire is the second death. If you're an overcomer, the second death won't touch you. How about verse 17? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, is that kind of personal from God to this person? How does this person get that kind of special personal treatment? Being an overcomer. How about verse 26? And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. You say, are you done yet? No. Verse 5 of chapter 3. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Look at verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Look at verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. That's seven churches and seven promises to overcomers. And then if you come over here to chapter 21, look at how the book concludes. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Send the Roman hordes. Our brethren died in the Colosseum at pagan Rome's hands. Our brethren died in the dark ages of Europe at papal Rome's hands. They were overcomers. Look at the rewards for overcomers. 
Are you encouraged or not? Look at what he'll do. It's all in the Word of God. Do you read the whole thing? The Bible's a deep well of fresh water. Or call it a deep mine of fine gold. There's always something new to find. That's why David, who knew the Bible quite well because he only had seven books and he was a prophet, he would say, Lord, every, when he opened the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 18, Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Even David knew that in the book of Leviticus, the Lord was going to show him something special. I know what you do with the book of Leviticus. Do you think it's on my short Bible reading program over there? Uh-uh. It's difficult reading. But you know what? There's something special in every verse. This is God's Word. It'll feed your soul. It'll make you alive. I've tasted the things of the world. I've driven their cars. I've had their jobs. I've had their praise. It doesn't matter. It's empty. The worst days of my life were the most prosperous days of my lives. The best day of my life is when I'm in the Lord and He's showing me things from His Word and He's comforting me and encouraging me. There's nothing like it. What makes you run around the house when no one's there punching the air and screaming that you love somebody that can't be seen and you love the word that he wrote? And I'm nothing. He owes far more that I haven't given him yet. I want him to take a cup of wine from me, from the grapes that are pressed out of Jonathan Crosby and take a long draft of that and be blessed in his heart. And I want it to be from you that way. That's why I'm preaching about knowing God. I want us to know him and delight in him and to love him. Because He created us for no other end. Why do you think you were created to have a family? Why do you think you were created to have a dog? Why do you think you were created to go hunting? You were created to give glory to God. I want you to fulfill your purpose because I'm going to give an account for you and for me. Preachers. God's given you preachers. I'm sorry about the one you have that he's not more eloquent and can't move you more. But preachers are men that God chose, God prepared, God convicted, and God sends for men to be encouraged in the faith. The Bible says they have beautiful feet. Why do they have beautiful feet? Because the message they bring is beautiful. Elihu, look at Job chapter 33. Job chapter 33. It's rare to have a preacher that will preach God's word. And I'm not talking about anyone that's present in this room. I'm just talking about God's preachers. I just want to remind you of what Elihu told Job. Look what happens to men sometimes. Verse 19, this happens to men sometimes, and it was happening to Job right then. Job 33, verse 19. Here it's describing a man. He's chastened also with pain upon his bed, and the multitude of his bones with strong pain. I mean, this guy is aching. So that his life abhorreth bread. He doesn't even want to eat. And his soul, dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen. He's skin and bones, and his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave, and his life to the destroyers. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him, and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness." That whole passage is to describe a preacher being at a man's bedside who needed it, and Job needed it, and guess who the preacher was? It wasn't Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, the three older men that met with Job first. It was Elihu. So God gives us preachers, and I'm thankful for preachers in my life. Godly men think that hearing the Word of God and hearing it explained to them is worth celebrating. Remember Nehemiah chapter 8 and why we've had some mirth feasts in this church? You've never heard of a church that has mirth feasts. But we have mirth feasts because we understand the preaching of God's Word. 
and they did in the Bible. We should celebrate that. Do you know how many people carry this book around or have it in their houses? Do you know how many hotels have it in the nightstands? But how many people understand it? God has blessed us abundantly. That doesn't mean we understand the whole thing. We understand it the best we can. If the Lord will show us some more, we'll thank Him for it. How was wild John the Baptist supposed to be esteemed? The man did not buy his suits at Macy's. John the Baptist, a girdle of leather, and every now and then he reaches in his little pouch and pulls out a grasshopper, snaps its head off, sticks it in a little bit of honey and eats it. How was he supposed to be esteemed? What did Jesus say of him? Of all men born of a woman. That's the whole human race. There is none greater than John the Baptist. You know, the world wants to see fine clothes, fine car, fine house, fine manner, fine pulpit manner, fine bedside manner. John the Baptist, do you want him at your bedside when you're dying? In a leather girdle, stinking from the wilderness? Oh, yes. Do you know what he's going to tell me about? The one message he had. He only preached one message. There cometh one after me who is worthy and more honorable than I who was before me. I must decrease, he must increase. The Lord Jesus Christ, my cousin. Praise God for John the Baptist and for preachers. Look at the gospel. What is the gospel news? Do you know how far you have to read in the Bible to find the gospel? The gospel is the good news, glad tidings of Jesus Christ coming to save us from what our first parents got us into. How far do you have to read? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God speaking to the devil. There's going to be enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed, it, he, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Devil, all you're going to be able to do to a boy that's coming out of a woman is hurt his heel, just a little heel wound. What he's going to do to you, he's going to destroy you by giving you a fatal wound to your head. Genesis 3.15. That is the gospel. I'm telling you things that God's given you to encourage you. He's given you the Bible. He's given you preachers. He's given you the gospel. You know what the Bible tells us about the love of God for you? Behold. Behold! What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and you are seeking to live for Him to show some substance to that faith that you have in Christ, do you know what the Bible says about you? Remember, Joel, what does the Bible say about you? You're a king and a priest. And what kind of a priest are you? You're a royal priest. You're a kingly priest. The Bible says that about every one of us. And it's not talking about some earthly priest that is only dealing with a stone statue. When the Bible talks about a priest and calls us being priests, it's talking about us being able to go straight into the presence of Jehovah God. We're kings. In what sense are we going to, what sense are we kings? We're going to reign over the universe with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know who's going to judge angels? The church at Corinth and the church of Greenville. Because it says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first eight verses. We're going to judge angels. We're kings. We're priests. We can go right in the presence of God because of what Jesus did for us. Do you know how special you are? And I'm not talking... Listen, I read something by a wicked Christian writer that's very popular today yesterday that says you're special because you exist that is called existentialism and that is pagan devilish heresy you are not special because you exist 
There are a lot of things that exist that God hates. You are special because God chose you when you were hateful and put you in the Lord Jesus Christ and made you special by sending His Son to die for you. In Christ we're special. Outside of Christ we're the hated enemies of God. But He's made us kings and priests and that's the gospel. Is that encouraging? Do you know how pitiful we are? Look at this little congregation of pitiful people. We're base, we're poor, we're foolish. We're nothing in the world's opinion. But if they had any idea of who we were, I've told you before, every inch of this property would be covered with paparazzi wanting to get your picture. Because you are a king and priest of the Most High God, Jehovah of the Bible. That's the gospel. And He's given it to you to encourage you. He's an encouraging God. He is all those things. But He's made us so much. The gospel says that Jesus Christ is going to come again with a shout. And with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Is that encouraging? I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, as those that have no hope and and sorrow too much about people dying. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And it goes on to describe the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Jesus Christ is so powerful, He goes after the dead first because they're easiest. It's not because they're easiest. It's to give those that are alive and that are worried about their dead relatives hope. He goes that they're going to be raised first. Do you know who's going to hit the clouds first? Not us if we're alive, but dead saints that have gone before us. Bruce's body is going to get to the cloud first, Mother Joy. I'm sorry. I hope you're not disappointed. But his body is going to go before yours does. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord, and so shall we be forever with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What does the word comfort mean? Go ahead. Encourage. That's what comfort means, to encourage. And so we can comfort one another about death that way. Is it exciting for you that our little tiny church here has more of a worldwide ministry than Paul ever had? Paul's ministry was so small, it was Asia Minor. It's what we call Turkey and Greece today. That was it. And I'm not making fun of the Apostle Paul. He did it all by foot, and he did it by quill pen and candle. And he did it suffering death, and he was stoned. And look at his resume in 2 Corinthians 11. We're nothing compared to the Apostle Paul, and no one should misunderstand me. However, we're able to go into 220 countries every, every day, every month, 220 nations of the earth, and send the gospel for hardly anything. Does that encourage you? The Lord has chosen us for a generation in which there's this crazy thing called the Internet. And the world uses it for porn and spreading all kinds of garbage. And we get to use it for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Why, do we, why did He choose us for that? Oh, brethren, we have a church. Do you know that a church is a gift from God? Two are better than one. The Bible says that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We need each other. Without each other, we wouldn't make it. We have companions. Do you know in Psalm 122 where it says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Do you know who the emphasis is on in Psalm 122? It's the they. I was glad when they, they, plural, uh, third person pronoun, referring to other people, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Because Psalm 122 is about the companions that we have in the church. Our companions in the church should be our closest friends. They're the ones we have the most in common with. They're actually our blood brothers. Because it's the blood of Jesus Christ that adopted us both. They're blood brothers. The church is a wonderful thing. I can't preach to you a PowerPoint presentation I gave to you one year ago entitled, What is the Church? 
that went through everything the Bible says it is because it's a phenomenal long list of wonderful things that the church is. It's encouraging. The Bible says in Psalm 34 that when we get up and magnify the Lord, it blesses the hearts of the humble. Have we already had that happen to us today? With brethren that got in this pulpit and praised the Lord. Look at John 14, 15, and 16. If you read John 14 last night, what else has God given us that encourages us? It is expedient that I go away. If I go away, I will send the Comforter. What is another word that we could use to help us understand the sense of that word, the Comforter? The Encourager. I will send the Encourager. Who shall encourage you? Who shall comfort you? And he shall abide with you forever. When you look in the Old Testament, David, Samson, others, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would be blessed for a while. Then the Holy Spirit would leave. He would come for special operations. We get the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives. We have God dwelling in us if we're walking in the Spirit. Now listen, if you've grieved the Spirit of God or you've quenched the Spirit of God by watching television you shouldn't have or all sorts of other things that grieve, that grieve, God gets grieved with some of the things we do, say, think, watch, see. The inputs that we allow into our lives, you don't know what I'm talking about. But when we get rid of those things and we walk in the Holy Spirit, there is joy inside of us by the comfort and encouragement of the Spirit of God. He is the one that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father! He is the one that convinces us and bears witness with our soul, my soul individually, without any help from you, that I am a son of God. God is my father and I am his son. I am a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He convinces me of that from the inside out. I'm convinced from the outside in by the word of God. I'm convinced from the inside out by the spirit of God. When the two of them match together, my mind, my heart, my spirit, everything about me is blessed and encouraged. And we only lose that by sin in our lives or not giving ourselves to the Word, or not walking in the Spirit. The Bible says so much about the Spirit of God. Do you know what the seal is in your life? There is a divine, royal seal upon you. Kings had rings. Kings had medallions. That when they had an official document, they'd pour some hot wax on it, take that take that medallion or that ring, usually a ring, or was hanging around their neck, which was a signet and an insignia, that was specially carved that could not be duplicated, bang, down into that wax. So that document would could not be broken because it was sealed with the king's seal. Do you know what the seal is in our lives? The Holy Spirit of the living God. Right. And he has called our seal, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 4. He's our seal. That's an encouragement that God has sealed us for heaven. God has sealed us as his own. Do you know what he's also called in some of those same passages along with being a seal? He is the earnest. He's the earnest of our future inheritance. What's an earnest? What's earnest money? Let me, I'm, I'm cheating now and helping you a little too much. But what's earnest money? It means that you're in earnest. You're going to buy a house. Usually 3% in real estate transactions. You buy a $100,000 house, you're expected to put three grand down as earnest money. It means you're in earnest. And you're not jerking this seller around. You're not going to have him pull the house off the market for a month while you play around and decide you don't want it. They're going to keep your 3000 It's earnest money. God's put earnest money down on us because He's called us His purchased possession. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This ugly body of mine, and it is getting uglier every day, it is God's purchased possession. 
He is coming back to redeem my body. If I were to die right now, this very instant, my spirit would be in the presence of God just like the thief was that very day with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's spirit went to heaven. The thief's spirit went to heaven. The thief's body went to a common grave. Jesus' body went to the grave of Nicodemus. This is his purchased possession. He's not going to lose my body. He's not going to lose your body. If you're, And it's called the purchased possession. He possesses it because he bought it. Amen. How did he buy it? With the precious blood of Christ. Amen. He has me lock, stock, and barrel, meaning he has me body, soul, and spirit. But do you know what the earnest is that he's going to perform and give me an inheritance in this body? The Holy Spirit. Right. Called right. the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? How do you know that you've got him? He leads you in the way of righteousness. He testifies of Christ. He helps you to love Christ more. He helps you to love the church more. He helps you to love the gospel more. He helps you to love the Bible more. He helps you to get excited when you're singing about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, if you sing about the Lord Jesus Christ and you're just mumbling the words and half dead in your pew, we can't even tell if you're a child of God and no one can and you can't either. But as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Amen. Do you know what the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts? The love of God. Romans 5.5. 5. Prayer. You know, pagan gods can't even hear. They don't even have ears, some of them. You know, Allah doesn't even have ears. At least many pagan gods have ears. They're made out of stone or wood, and they can't hear anyway. But Allah doesn't even have ears. But our Lord Jehovah has ears and he hears the prayers of his people. And is that encouraging to know that you have a prayer hearing God? Amen. But he's not only a prayer hearing God, he's a prayer answering God. Amen. And there's so much more that could be said about that. Do you know that he can give you a peace that passes understanding Amen. for the most difficult things in your life? If you will, by supplication and thanksgiving, commit those matters to God. Does it say that in the Bible? It's Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He can give you a peace that passes understanding. That can be kind of encouraging when you think you're overwhelmed that you're going to be overwhelmed in the other direction shortly if you'll take it to the Lord in prayer. What more could have been done for you? Turn back to Isaiah. Let me finish. I told you I was going to go back here to finish. What more could he or should he have done for you? Has he ever convicted you, converted you, blessed you, directed you, protected you, Forgiven you, comforted you, given you hope, joy, peace, strength, truth, wisdom, glory. Has he done those things for you? Verse 1, Isaiah 5. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. This is God and Israel. This is God and his church. This is God and you. You are a vineyard. This is what God says about what he's done for you. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. I am now at verse 2. And he, that is God, fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, 
When I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Let's judge today. What more should the Lord have done for you to get you to live for Him? What more did He need to do? Wasn't it enough? It's more than enough. Every problem in my life, I caused. Every blessing in my life was His gift. He did everything. The things He's done for me are wonderful. Naturally. Spiritually. Tangibly. Intangibly. Every bad thing I've ever experienced, I brought it on me. What more? Let's judge. Who's fair? Who's righteous? God is. This encouraging God has blessed us with so many things. Why can't we live for Him? Why is it so hard? You young people that are going to a bonfire tonight, you're going to remember things God's done for you. Make memory of them. Bury them with the good things that the Lord's done for you. Tell them the things that He's done. There are many of them. Think about your health. Have you ever been scared? At 25, I never thought I'd be 26. It's a long story. I'm not even going to tell you about it. I never thought I'd see 26. The best physicians, the best cardiologists in Detroit trying to find out what was wrong with me. Didn't matter. I'm here. I'm 55 years old. I did not believe I'd see 26. I mean, I'm asking you to think about things for you. A spouse. I was tired of the little girls of this world. I wanted one that was a, I wanted one as pure as the driven snow and he sent me one. What about you? What about children? Some of you couldn't conceive and now you have children sitting in your pew with you. Some of you had children sick and now they're well. Jonathan wouldn't breathe. He's breathing now. Praise the Lord. It just goes on and on. I have seven children. I want them to marry those that fear the Lord. It's more important to me than life and breath. And they have believing spouses. And I'm asking you to be thinking. I don't want you to think about me. I want you to think about you. Ever had blessings on your job? Ever had things turn out that you said, what in the world just happened? That is too good to be true. It happens. Your finances, safety, has the Lord protected you in accidents? Have you ever had to take a test and then you passed it? Have you ever made application to important schools and had them received? Have you been promoted? Have you had answers to prayer? Have the Lord shown you opportunities? Has He had reversals in your life? Where you were going in one direction and He reversed everything. Praise the Lord He has He's done that. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. As we sang earlier. You show me the world's promises and I'll show you that they're as empty as Satan's and Judas's. Satan promised Adam and Eve, you'll be like gods if you'll eat that fruit. Were they like gods? They were ruined forever and all their descendants. Judas thought he would have 30 pieces of easy money. Judas threw that money back so he didn't have the money. Then he went out and hanged himself and then his hanging didn't go very well and he dashed his bowels across the ground. That's the devil's lie. But the devil comforted him and encouraged him to do it. Don't you give me the world's promises. I'll give you God's promises. They're better. God's encouragement is better than anything the world can encourage you to do. Moses had enough encouragement to leave Egypt's pleasures behind and look at his greatness. He suffered affliction with the people of God, but what a great man Moses is. Why halt ye between two opinions? If Elijah were here right now, he'd, he'd resurrect some words from 1 Kings 18. Why halt ye between two opinions? Are you going to live all out for God? 
Or are you going to give him wild grapes in a glass of wine? When he presses his wine press and he takes a drink of your life, is it beautiful, wonderful, specially protected, fenced, choice, protected, fertilized grapes? Or are they wild grapes? I have to answer the same question. I want to give him the best grapes that I can. I want him to squeeze, I want him to squeeze my life and get it at those things that please him. Let's make today. How about this week? How about this coming year? The best we've ever had serving the Lord. He's very encouraging. If you'll take a step in his direction, he'll run a mile in yours. The picture that he wants us to have is the prodigal son in a pig's pen looking at the pigs slopping away on their corn husks that were thrown in there. He's been reduced to below poverty. And he says, you know what? The servants back at my father's house are eating better than this. I will arise and go to my father and tell him that I'm not worthy to be called a son, that if he would just make me a servant, I'd be happy. He made a choice, and I'm asking you to make it right now. Then he got up, and he headed toward his father. But while he was yet afar off, his father saw him and came running to him. That's easy. That's encouraging. You take the first step, and the Lord Jesus Christ will come the rest of the way if you'll keep walking in his direction. And he'll say, be not afraid. It is I. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word to the encouragement and conviction of your hearts.